This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello and welcome to Body Count, a history podcast where we gab about death and disaster through the ages, highlighting figures, single events, time periods, whatever it may be that resulted in someone, or as is usually the case, a lot of someone's dying. I am your host, Jessica Manner, joined as always by my co-host... Kara DiDemizio, and we are back with more Gallipoli. Um, we're actually getting to some sad shit today. So, um, Thomas is back, and yeah, I'm he back. about to make Jessica cry. And At this point, excited. listener, you are probably very familiar with who I am and my voice now. <laughs> You're probably sick of it. Um, don't worry, there's probably like three-ish more episodes to go. So, you know, uh you, you know, we're, we're, we're in this together now. We're deep in this together. So um, we're just going to have to ride it out, I feel. I uh, We're going to have to ride it out. Our viewers are going to have an Anzac week and a half. It's going to be amazing. They're going to be... I know, it's going to be like April depressed. 17th to April 25th at this point. Um, but that's fine. That's good because, quite frankly, I think the non the world that's not New Zealand and Australia need to be aware of what Anzacs are. And they mm. need to be appreciative of that because I feel like, like you said, I think two episodes ago, Thomas, it's kind of in, in the historical memory for Australia and New Zealand, similar to D-Day, with the exception being, of course, spoiler alert, that not great advances happen in Gallipoli. Um, yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's widely seen as New Zealand's kind of greatest military disaster. Um just in the not not necessarily I, I think we may have had some technically worse ones since um but it's kind of the it's kind of the first really big one so it is like a, in the in the national consciousness well and will. like you said i think it kind of premeditated the discussion on like what new zealand's place was mm. in in the i guess greater commonwealth right because up until that point there was the idea that you know okay tit for tat we allow you know if we support britain here you know maybe they'll support our interests if shit goes you know goes to the fan because at this point they already had an idea in the, in the south pacific mm. there might be some shit that's going to happen later on which spoiler alert they weren't wrong there yeah um just the timing of it was a little bit i think different than what they thought but that being said they i think that would have changed and i think we'll probably discuss this but in the aftermath, that would have certainly changed course on, I, I would think, how New Zealand and Australia would have felt. Yeah, definitely. And it's that kind of stuff that um, later when um, America was trying to cozy up with kind of New Zealand and Australia and a few other <laughs> Pacific nations as well, um, things like ANZUS, um, which was like a military pact between Australia, New Zealand and the United States. ANZUS? Um, Are you serious? Yeah, that's what it was called, ANZUS. Yeah. yeah. Um, which was then, I don't know, I don't think it's still around. If it is, we're not part of it anymore um, because we banned nuclear stuff and then the United States got real pissy at us about it, so they kicked us out. Um, but it's it's that kind of, um, and, and as well as when Nixon came to uh, New Zealand when he was president, um, the idea behind that was to foster increased relations with New Zealand, basically not necessarily to pull New Zealand away from Britain, but to kind of, bring them close to the United States, which would kind of in turn 
um new zealand kind of saw it as like a a, a united states united kingdom kind of choice right we kind of have to pick one to go with and ultimately we ended up going with the united kingdom um because there's just a bit more history there that kind of kept us connected to them but you know it was that it was things like gallipoli that when these events where the united states was trying to um you know have a better relationship with us have a more united kingdom relationship type relationship with new zealand that you know, pe people were like, yeah, like maybe, maybe we should look at Gallipoli. Look how that went. Maybe we should be more friendly with the United States. Um, it's never really gone that way. But, um, but you know, the, the things like Gallipoli are kind of, that's, I guess, what people point to. Um, oh, fun these fact. Things happen. New Zealand is back in the saddle as of 2012 with ANZUS. So, really? Yeah. So in the 80s, they're like, you know, like you had mentioned with in the yep. whole nuke thing. Um, yep. It had kind of put the news, you know, New Zealand at odds with U.S. foreign policy. Well, for um, this info I'm looking at, it looks like in 2012, New Zealand had lifted a ban on, on U.S. warships, including nuclear warships, visiting. Um, number two, also, it looks like New Zealand um, in 2007, uh, from what this is saying, resumed key elements of the ANZUS Treaty. So New Zealand is once again allied in that regard with Back in the United it. States. Yeah. Yeah. So I do, I do, I do. Um, cause I remember this, I remember this event in 2012 quite well, actually. Um, so I do actually believe that we haven't rescinded our ban on anything that is nuclear powered. Um, but because regular... correct. So your U S warships are allowed within New Zealand waters. Um, but they generally don't, um, because there's no way that we can guarantee that a U.S. warship is not nuclear powered. This was in a direct response, I believe, to um, the United States sending a um, a warship to, I think it was the like 100th anniversary of the Royal New Zealand Navy. Um, and so they, the U.S. sent a warship uh, here, I think it was a destroyer, to kind of have a presence um, at those celebrations. And there was a big kind of uh, hullabaloo at the time because a lot of people went well hang on nuclear powered warships are still illegal in new zealand how can we guarantee that that warship is not nuclear powered and the government basically just said well there is sure as shit no way that the u.s government is letting our people on board to verify that um you know that's just that's just bad military policy um so we basically just had to take the united states word for it that it was diesel powered and not nuclear powered um, and, <laughs> yeah so i was just like which I was kind of like, yeah, fair enough. Like, I'm not super happy about it, but I get it. You know, like, yeah, I, I wouldn't want anyone wandering around on my destroyer, you know, looking at stuff and, as well. The other thing was, that I think around about the same time, we also sent a warship to Hawaii for the anniversary. I think it was of Pearl Harbor. I can't quite remember. But we sent a warship over there for something. And um, that was the first time that um, it was very interesting at the time because it was the first time that a New Zealand warship would be in port right next to an American warship since we banned uh, nuclear in New Zealand. So it was a kind of a big deal at the time. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize that that meant we went back into ANZUS. That's quite interesting. Wow. I'm very excited about this, this thaw and relate, not thaw and relationships, but relationships. policy development. <laughs> Meanwhile, I had to talk about all of this and the Pacific war threat last night on a different podcast. And I'm just of going, course oh, I don't care. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, oh. 
God help me. I had to do this last night. I am a a 20th century slut. What can I say? C24. (laughs) Should we we go make some Gallipoli then? Should we? uh... Yes. What's, what's, what's rewind and what, where are we in the story, Thomas? Where have we left off? Where we left off last last time was last time we mostly covered the the April twenty fifth uh, landings, um, so what that kind of entailed and and how that kind of went. Um, long story short, atrociously is in a word, um, but you know, go back and listen to that episode if you want the full. I'm sorry, I just thought of your tweet today about oh shit, I remembered all the stuff I said. <laughs> yeah, no, there, was a, there was an Aussie guy that was like. It was like, oh, I really want to listen to this. And then I was just like, me remembering all the stuff I bagged about Aussies. I was just, oh, shit. Like, why would you land in that cove? Like, why would you do that? That's all we talked about. Why did you land not exactly where you intended to? And not take into account anything. Specifically, what I remember about is where the lens that we're looking through I remember we seem to have landed in a slightly better place in which they actually get some rest. But then Thomas fucking dashed my hopes against a rock horrifically being like, no, 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 it's going to get worse. I hope you enjoy this. It's going to be a lot worse from here. So basically what we're saying is Thomas is the person that just caught us and we're a crab and he's about to literally break our skull open. Against no, 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 no. I'm not going to break your skull open. I'm going to pull each leg one by one and then your claws, and then I'm going to break your skull open. He's going to eat us like a blue crab in this case. He's going to pull open the layers, <laughs> pull the legs out, and then, you know, eat the, the main meat. So that's great. Good. Mm. Great. Exactly. Wonderful. I'm really excited so, yeah. about this because last time wasn't traumatic at all or anything. Not at all. No, no, it was, that was, that was the easy stuff. That Ooh, was boys. the antipathy, so to speak. That was the that, appetizer. Mm, that was oh. the, mm, yeah, that was the appetizer. We haven't even got to the main yet. Um, so yeah, so we talked about um, the April 25th landings and how that kind of went for them. And of course, following um, William Malone, the um, Lieutenant Colonel of the Wellington Battalion, kind of his, his kind of journey through that. Um, so of course we're, we're looking kind of through his lens and kind of just when we like last left off, um, the Wellington infantry battalion had just been, uh, reassigned from the Gallipoli peninsula to go to Cape Hellas, which if you kind of remember a couple of episodes back, that was kind of where the quote unquote main assault was meant to be happening. The Gallipoli assault was meant to be like kind of, um, a diversionary measure and was meant to cut supply lines so that the Ottomans wouldn't be able to uh, reinforce Cape Hellas and that kind of stuff. But they, the British, the British commanders thought that Hellas was going to be where the bulk of the work was done. That was where they were putting their best men. And Gallipoli was like, well, we need some guys to go and do this like fairly menial task that needs to be done. So we'll put the kind of average guys over there. So the Wellingtons had been pulled off Gallipoli to go to Hellas instead. I'm mm. sorry, FYI, guys, really quickly, we're going to put these maps that Thomas has, uh, Ooh, and I'm yeah. very, very grateful, uh, supplied for us. It's going to be kind of important that you yep. look, look at these maps. It's it's going to be a, a kind it's of a central thing. It's going to tell you what so you, you need to know. Well, you're going to, yeah, 
you're going to have yeah at least about where we're moving what we're doing what we're up against and uh, they're topographical and they are also uh showing the way that incursions move like as the allies are coming it's going to be very important yeah, it's um it's less important for Hellas. Um, I don't have any maps for Hellas because, if I'm honest, I was less interested because we're gonna go there, do some shit, and come back. Spoilers, but that's what that's how we're gonna go. Um, so I haven't got any maps for Hellas, so it's slightly less important for that. Um, but in terms of Gallipoli, it is very very important. It it uh, you would have heard me talk about it last time, which was you know the the kind of topography and that kind of stuff. That to understanding that is kind of key to understanding why Gallipoli was so terrible. Um, so yeah, so we, we, last we left off, we, we started heading towards Hellas. Um, so when they got there, the Wellingtons and other Kiwis, um, were basically set about to try and end the two day, the now two day long battle of Carithia. Um, the objective was to take the village of the same name and a nearby hill that would allow them to have the advantage in the wider area. You know, they'd have, um, oversight over the wider area, all that kind of stuff. The plan was for the French to capture a nearby gully and the Kiwis would surge out of the trenches to capture the village itself. Um, the Wellingtons, Aucklands and Canterbury's would be on the left, centre and right respectively. So the Wellingtons were on the left and the Otagos would be kept in reserve due to being in bad shape after the offensive on Baby 700, which I believe we briefly mentioned last time. Um... The attack was due to take place at 11am with Aussie historian John Laffin saying, quote, if Hunter Weston, Weston, the commander who came up with this plan, had actually wanted to be beaten, he could hardly have improved on his plans, end quote. <laughs> so, oh wow. boy. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. This Ooh. was given uh, to the fact that this would give the Ottomans ample time to wake up, have breakfast and be ready among other factors is that he actually, he didn't actually know where the, the Turks were. Um, so, you know, if you started at 11 o'clock, you know, they're getting up at 6am, they're having their brekkie, they're, you know, you've got time for a chin wag and a bath, you know, and you can go, right, yeah, 10.30, right, let's go down to the trenches, lads, and, uh, you know, mount up. Um, you know, by the time 11 o'clock rolls around, the, the, the Turks are ready. They're already waiting right. for you. They've done calisthenics. They've, had their They've dressed yeah. up for the day. They've, They've done their hair. They're yeah. coughed. They're ready for this shit. They've got their and morning they, yoga. You know, like... Seriously, you know, like... is legit. So they're already hyped. So on, they're going... Yeah. Like, they're fully ready. Right? Yeah, oh, they're they're they're, they're, okay. they're not just ready in the sense that like you get up in the morning, like do your hair and go to work. They've they're done like, like yoga. They've meditated like... in the morning. Like eleven a.m. for a military operation is like these guys aren't just like aren't just like ready. They're like mentally, physically. They're like you know what? Yeah. I feel good. Like you know, not to mention the advantage that they're defending their homeland, which is an yes. important thing too, because in their mind. When you have the advantage of you're defending your homeland, I'll put it this way. A lot can happen when you are, yep. in, in theory, defending your home turf. It's an so excellent they, propaganda they have snorted some nationalist coke off yeah. of their okay, like, coffee table and they're the ready Ottomans, to go. To be fair to the Ottomans, I think I would feel the same way if I were like, you know what I mean, being invaded. 
Like, yeah, I mean, know? it gives you an yeah, inherent that's what I'm into that's a thought. That's why I said a, a nationalist sense of, yeah. yeah, you're ready. You've stretched. You're fucking filling loose. Yeah. Let's hey, do you this. Planes? You know, you, you really yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it does. It is. You're right. It gives you a, like an inherent, like mental advantage because you are, you know, kind of willing to hold ground for longer than you perhaps would or should if you were just holding a piece of ground that didn't have any meaning to you. Um, so you know, and 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 the other thing as well, being of course, as I just said, um, they didn't actually know where they were. Um, the the reconnaissance and and that kind of stuff was actually pretty trash. Um, so you know, good, pretty good all round. You know. Um, so on the 7th of May, Malone was ordered to move his troops forward, avoiding any casualties by moving his men in small groups, as opposed to one just large mass. Two hours before the attack was due to commence, New Zealand Infantry Brigade commanders were informed that the attack would begin at 10.30am now, which would take place after 15 minutes of shelling. So Johnston, who if we remember is the New Zealand Infantry Brigade commander, um, didn't pass this on to his battalion commanders, Malone being one of them, until after 10 a.m. To Yeah, after 10 a.m., meaning they had 20 minutes to brief their company commanders, who in turn had barely 10 minutes to brief and deploy their b- platoons. Nothing says victory like a rush assault, right? Yeah. God, Jesus Christ. These poor guys, they cannot catch a fucking break. Men didn't have a clear idea of the objectives or what support they could expect from other units. They didn't really know what was going on. Is there any reason we know why only 15 minutes of shelling? Like, that seems a little lax. Yeah, I didn't find anything. uh, I guess yeah. they just thought that was sufficient. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, exactly, based on yeah. based on what um, how this assault's been planned, I'm I'm really not all that surprised thus far. Yeah, so. it is. Um, it is when you compare it to other. Uh, like we'll talk a bit more about some more shelling that they did and stuff. You know, usually they'll say it's like half an hour, an hour, two hours worth of shelling before they assault, right? It's, it's quite a significant amount of time. So 15 minutes of shelling in kind of the grand scheme of things is not a lot of time compared to other assaults of similar type. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it, or that, you know, same sort of thing. So it is it is a bit unusual why they did that, but I'm not sure why they chose that. As you say, I guess they just, they thought it was sufficient. Um, uh, so yeah. call back for our listeners, I think it's going to be just a drawback on. They thought they were largely unprepared for this assault, <laughs> which... Should have been proved ridiculous after three, what, four months? But apparently not. Mm. Okay. Wow. Great planning. All right. Yeah. So some, some amazing planning, and it didn't end there, though. The Wellingtons were still 500 meters, which is about 1,640 feet from the front-line trenches mm. by the time the shelling stopped. Oh. So they would need to cross open ground, totally exposed, just to reach the start of their own line. Not even, I'm not even talking, for anyone who doesn't, who doesn't really quite understand what I'm saying here, I'm not talking about they have to cross no man's land, the area between the Turkish and Anzac trenches. I'm talking they have to cross their own trenches in open ground, totally exposed, with with no artillery uh, artillery support just to get to the point where they reach no man's land. 
Oh oh don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that that is fucking ridiculous. I am That's just bad. now getting what you meant by it's gonna get worse. Oh, this shit. isn't even the worst bit. I know. I like. I oh, better. God. It's uh, it's horrific. But you know, this didn't stop them. At ten thirty a.m., they rushed uh, towards the Turkish trenches, cheered on by other troops. After 300 meters, uh, which is like, I'm not quite sure how much that is. I didn't do that conversion, sorry. After 300 meters, they were forced to take cover as machine guns absolutely smashed them. The other battalions... That's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's rough. 300 meters is... I mean, it's a decent amount of distance, but it's... uh, Yeah, in open ground, it is a lot. So the other battalions hadn't had much luck either. And by 1.30 p.m., oh, that's about 984 feet. For any Americans listener listening, that's about almost 984 feet, so about a thousand feet away. So they're literally go. just being basically mass murdered. Like, I mean, machine yep. guns taking them out on all angles. If you know, that they're helps you ahead. out at all, guys, think about a hell of a lot of football fields in yep. that uh, space. Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge about amount of area. Three, three football crossing. fields, I think. So by about 1.30, as I said, the Kiwis were at a standstill, and the whole thing was shambolic. Um, They had been sent in broad daylight at the enemy with virtually no recon, no clear objective, and minimal support, as well as the fact that the attack starting far behind the front line gave the Turks plenty of time to know what was happening, where they were, and how to counter it. So it was, as I said, shambolic and generally just a fucking shit show. And Hamilton, if we remember, is the um, Mediterranean Expeditionary Force commander, so he's the top guy. So Hamilton wanted to give it another go at 4.30 p.m., and Malone was ordered to fix bayonets and push on. He protested to... Yep. So he protested to Johnston, which was his direct uh, superior, that his men were already 300 300 metres ahead of any other unit, and the Aucklands had not been ordered to push forward. So if you remember, the Aucklands were in the centre with the Wellingtons on the left. So they had an exposed flank on their right already. If they pushed forward any more, they're just going to expose that flank more and more, unless the Aucklands push up as well. Which Malone sees. Malone, yeah, he knows. Yeah, which he knows. I mean, again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know this. Like, it's it's not like Malone is, like, big-braining it here. This is something that has been known... um, you know, for, for hundreds of years. Um, this is, you know, flanks and shit is not a new thing to warfare. But also, sadly, I have to remark, it does not seem that anybody that is over him in field command seems to see yeah. this, whereas he does. So, again, exactly. obvious to us, but again, sadly enough, not obvious to his commanding officers. So Exactly, which is really what it all boils down to. It's twenty twenty hindsight you know, here, looking into the past. So Malone does know his men would be slaughtered, but Johnston doesn't care. Thankfully, Hamilton ended up ordering a general advance for 5.30 p.m. So that means everyone will move forward. So that's something, at least. The Wellingtons attempted to push, um, but Turkish fire forced them back into the trenches. And the rest of the NZIB weren't able to move either. 
with the Aucklands and Otagos in particular sustaining heavy losses. And so going bad. I'm just I'm just visualizing. Can you imagine like when people are getting mowed down around you and you're you're carrying eighty plus pounds of like equipment, another natural obstacle is you're having to well, how do I put it? Walk over dead bodies, right? Yeah. So like that's just a mortifying picture in my head. Like the best way I can visualize it is like picture like you and your mates are just like a whole line up and then they're getting freaking mowed. You're in the yeah. line before and then you're having to like basically walk over them and seeing, mm. you know what I mean? Their, their bodies basically. So I can only yeah, imagine the... Like, the, the stressors, like the post-traumatic stress. Like I, I know for me, if I was hearing just the artillery shells, right. That would mm-hmm. be enough for me to like want to curl up in a ball and just like put my like hands over my ears. So I can only imagine like for these guys that are seeing the people that they've been in training with at this point for many months, if not many years, preparing for this moment, whether they be the Wellingtons or, you know, any of the Australian troops like. Yeah. Jesus. That's um, the, the, the kind of part of that as well is. um. When when you say like dead bodies, um, I, I I don't want to give the false impression to the listeners that the, these bodies are nice and clean. You know, they go down and no, oh, it's body parts. Pose. But it's not just that; it's bodies. Some of those bodies have been there for a while, wow. and so what actually ends up happening is those bodies and the you know the heat and, and decomposition and stuff they actually the inflate with gas and they bloat. Um, and what they kind of did for fun is they used to shoot those bodies so that they would explode and then the guts and stuff would rain over the enemy mm-hmm. trenches just because it was funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is like pretty yeah, fucking horrifying. <laughs> Hold on. Who is doing that? Who is shooting the bodies for fun at this point? Uh, both sides. Both sides. Fuck. To fuck yeah. with but... each other. Yeah, it's metal as yeah. fuck. This is yeah. a rough war. This is, a, this is, in a way, not I mean, I get that they're already dead at this point, but there's something still, I don't know, in my head at least, mm. there's something still disrespectful about it, right? Because, mm. like, you know, they're already dead. They're not getting an honorable burial. They're already <sighs> decomposing. They're already putrid smelling. And then you're yeah. just fucking taking out your, like, you're, you're just basically going off and making these explode. Like, that's disgusting. It like, is what it is. This is why I always tell people, we, we always want to talk about the Second World War, but the First World War is just so much more because there is a mass mechanization, but there is still a lot of old school, like, war tactic. Uh, uh, there, it, that's the problem with World War One. They're using these old school tactics in a very non- productive way so they're not in a for semi-industrialized a world so yeah. it, uh, whew, it's rougher it's this weird it's kind of rougher yeah it's this weird kind of mix of new and old stuff and it's arguably kind of way more grisly in a lot of ways yeah I mean it's just it's metal AF as our mm. listeners will know it's metal as fuck guys this is what it is in a perturbing yeah. way yeah definitely so the Aussies and French elsewhere on the Cape weren't having much luck either. Unable to move and being mauled, the Aussies suffered 1,000 casualties alone. And again, casualty, oh. means, casualty yeah. in this particular term means, and correct me if I'm wrong, not only just like people killed, but basically you're being put out of battle for whatever reason. Yeah. So you're yeah. whatever reason. If you're, you uh, disease or if you um, get injured, 
or it's basically anything that you can think of that means that you're unable to fight, you become a casualty. Um, but usually that usually what that means is you either died, was injured, or, or yeah, um, such as maimed. Yeah. So you're basically yeah, rendered. But think about your injuries and your maiming. If we're in trench warfare, even here in the Eastern Theater, bodies are being shot like for funsies to rain down yeah. like horrible shit. What do you think your evac chances are if you're yeah. a serious cal- like casualty? of war yeah like, exactly these that. aren't guys that are getting grazed by bullets right these are horrific fucking injuries they're yeah. not going to survive a lot of them and they probably know this at this point right because like at this mm. point they're seeing what's happening to the people yeah. in front of them so like that's particularly it's daunting sad right? thing is i'd rather outright fucking die than i don't know like then survive like but not be injuries that happen at least it's quick like, you know like yeah at least like switch, right? like, you know, one minute you're there one minute you're not and it's like oh thank god you know like that's all that's almost like versus, you can hope for a headshot right like you hope yeah. for a headshot in this even point. if you take a bullet wound and you sit in that trench for a couple of days and then get sepsis you know like i i, I know what end i want and it's not yeah. that and with one thing we have talked about in the previous episodes as well is the stretcher bearers were working non-stop so that the 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 kind of medical teams and that kind of stuff were already overstretched um you know so much so it's not it's not even just like whether you Um, it's not just like your chances were higher if you made it back it was did you make it back at all um because someone a found you b managed to get you back before they got killed um you know and see whether there was anyone who actually managed to make it to you because there were any stretcher bearers left you know so it's thomas you brought the most metal fucking story i think maybe that we've ever done like oh it's making you me invited me already <laughs> <laughs> i did i did indeed um but it's making me sick already because i yeah. i just never thought about the casualty side of it until just now sadly yeah enough it's Woo! yeah it's something i would have put more on but again we had to cut content somewhere, we gotta cut somewhere. um but you know it, it it is important to kind of have that in the back of your mind that, you know, because the other thing, the other way to think about this, a thousand casualties, that is roughly an entire battalion. Um, you know, that's basically the Wellingtons wiped off the map. That's it. They're gone. This is not the Wellingtons, I should stress, but, you know, that is effectively what that number means. Oh, my God. It's only going to get worse. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. So for Malone's part, he had suffered 200 casualties, with the the battalion now at half strength with about 500 men. So it's only been like a week, by the way, since they since the initial landing. Uh, You're gonna have you are gonna carve my heart out like a hundred, two hundred men at a time, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. Jesus fucking. Okay, all right. So, once again, the plan was a failure, and they were forced to dig in. On the 8th of May, Hamilton wrote to Kitchener, if you remember Kitchener is the Secretary of State for War. Um, I do. Yep. Uh, So he wrote to Kitchener of the woes of the operation, that the Ottoman defences were just too (laughs) strong, specifically saying they were, quote-unquote, too scientific. Um, That's not... Super relevant, but I thought it was an interesting way of putting it. 
Ottomans had the advantage or that they had under, I don't know, estimated the Ottomans? No, so I, I read the wider quote that that was from. He does not mention that at all. He basically just talks about how the Ottomans were just generally better, but he doesn't talk about how anything to do with like, oh man, we have done a crap job. We haven't really done this right. For, for pretty obvious reasons, right? He doesn't want to go making himself looking bad, um, you know, when he can just blame, hey, but the other guys are just so much better, you know? But for it, overwhelming as we have established and is not outside the realm of everything that exists in the British Empire at this point, a racist, <laughs> at yep. least he's going, oh, fuck, you guys massively underestimated Mm. what we're heading into because not only are they rocking and rolling and ready for us, they're scientific, like down yeah. to the umph of what they bring against us. They know what the assault's going to be. They are rocking, rolling and ready for us. What, what are you going to do about it? Um, which again, we've established like most people at this time, he's a racist. It's not yep. out of the way for him to be so, but also for him to go, oh, shit, we massively underestimated. Like, they are ready. They are clever. This is good. Yeah, it, but it's on the other hand, it's, a, it's the, on the other hand, it's a, I think what has happened is he's had a conflict between his racism and his pride, and his pride has won out, you know? Right. So, oh, my God, you're so right. You're so right And how it's. He's basically oh, like, do yeah. I bag myself? Or do I credit these guys that I think don't really deserve it because I'm a racist? He's gone, which of these is the lesser of two evils? I'll just say that the Ottomans are doing pretty well because I really don't want to make myself look bad. You're exactly right. No, you're exactly right. Which is just, again, that bizarre place where when you get mm. on this guy's side, you might be against it all of a sudden. But... I know that I'm going to be on it by the end of this freaking episode. Oh, not so. Hamilton's. No, nah, we're not going to be on Hamilton's side. Well, we're not still going to Hamilton's, all the way through. Malone's specifically, yeah. but also yeah. Hamilton, like, I'm never going to be on his side, but I also kind of see it, it should have been taken into account. Like, yeah. but again, how do you expect somebody in command, like ultimate command to read between the lines? And that's kind of the thing. You can't. Hmm. Not at this point, in my opinion. I think I might have been, but again, I have a lens of a hundred fucking years and reading between That's the lines. That's true, we all do, right? Like, we're all looking mm. at it retroactively. Exactly. So I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would have, but I feel like somebody with any fucking sense should have. Mm. But remember, oh. I think this this is the thing about World War One, right? And this is, I think, it's not that it doesn't happen in other conflicts, but one of the common criticisms of leadership on all fronts as is that there is this lack of understanding of what's actually going on in the sense that you're sending all of these men to their deaths because basically of marginal inches of land. Um, mm -hmm. Now that's particularly the case on the Western front. Right. But when you look at Gallipoli, they're not even gaining. <laughs> they're not even, no. they're sending these men to literally die upon a hill. Or a mountain, yep. but or a cove, depending on what geographically, you know, formation we want to go to. So, there. But not... what's 
I, I, I know. know but like what's interesting to me is again like so much human material we've talked about this in previous episodes basically they view these guys as cannon fodder but they also expected to take a lot more territory than they would mm. necessarily in the west i know isn't that rich right like you expect these guys to perform miracles and adv- like in advantages on like very unlikely upon, like these colonialist soldiers but expect them to take more and then when they don't you're almost just disapp- I, I i don't know you don't change your game plan upon okay this is clearly not going the way that we thought it's the same game i i just think it's mm. like what the fuck was everybody thinking yeah exactly the interesting thing though is that a daily telegraph correspondent was on site and he reported uh-huh. yeah so he reported that the tactics the commanders were using were just awful lacked thought and had a lack of consideration for other strategies in short the defenses may have been strong but f- throwing flesh at the walls wouldn't bring them down so at least someone else was seeing what malone was seeing so that's something you know what's the, the kind of that being a former <laughs> no no we're not talking himself. about him. okay sorry i'm just not saying. talking about him god damn it fucking I just, I just, that must have been for a war correspondent to throw that in his vodka face. take a shot of vodka for that churchill reference man. you're right i i deserve it i'm gonna do vodka and shut the fuck up like i deserve it i'm sorry but we're throwing some russian at you drink that liquor we're going. You're we're right. going back. You're right. I, there are no I more need Churchill to go inside. Here. Churchill was not in Gallipoli. If he was, he not talking about him. We're not talking about him. You're right. We're specifically. I hate the fucker. At this, this point, this is a new body career. count thing. Any Churchill <laughs> reference? I don't care what episode this is. Any Churchill reference? Jessica must immediately take a shot of vodka. Which means they're going to be very FDR, fun. Churchill, and Stalin. I have to take a shot. The good news is two of these people are not in play yet, so. <laughs> yeah. So, the weird thing about this kind of uh, this kind of phrasing that the correspondent used was that Hamilton actually used almost this exact same analogy in his letter to Kitchener, which I thought was interesting because he was oh so close to realizing the problem. Like, he, he actually wrote this in his thing saying, We can't just keep throwing men at the walls. It's not working. Proceeds to continue doing that for the next four months. For fuck's sake. Do you think it was a failure of command or it was just a a fundamental failure to understand what they were up against? I think he just didn't have anything else. He just literally just could not think of anything else to do. He, He got tunnel vision. He, he stuck to his guns. He knew what he knew, and that's all he did. He at never point. I don't think he was capable of looking at the situation and going, "This isn't working. We need to try something else." Because he literally didn't know anything else. He, that's, he had that's my the book theory, anyway. That he had had from officer school. That's mm. what he had at the time. That's of what you do. That's how war is done. Yeah, he's not capable of adapting yeah. to a situation. Okay. At least well, that's my know. armchair general theory, you know, so. 
Well, um, I think that's a pretty good one because I think it's some people aren't like that. They just draw from that book. You see this. Oh, God. Mm. So yeah. I can only imagine how fucking horrible this was. Oh. Yeah. So in any case, the Wellingtons dug in against heavy shelling without fires, blankets, and in some cases, mm. great coats. The stretcher bearers working around the clock. No. Oh. The commanders praised their men, saying, quote, I hope I shall be able to tell the people of New Zealand what grand fellows these soldier men are, end quote, as Turkish bullets cut down trees, shrubs, and the crests of the trenches. <clears throat> Shit's getting for real, if it hadn't already. Malone also wrote, quote, We sat at the bottom of the trenches and never fired a shot. We couldn't, end quote. Oh, Malone geez. himself actually had a few near misses as well. Um, a shrapnel shell bursting in front of him, uh, bullets hitting wood near his head, and another barely missing him when he was talking to the commander of the Otagos. And because of this, Malone kind of thought he was a little invincible, but he was still careful given the heavy losses in officers. Um, so this is something that's actually going to come up a bit later on, um, is that he, he kind of has this weird thing about thinking that he's like, kind of can never get hit. <laughs> Which is, like, kind of weird. Mm. All right. So Malone dreaded the order to restart the attack, but it never came on the 8th of May. And instead, he recorded how his battalion had gained 1,200 metres, which is nearly 4,000 feet, under heavy fire and crossed several friendly trenches without stopping, meaning that they had achieved the most of any battalion on the day. So that was pretty good. He put a lot of this as well... Uh, he put a lot of this as well as the fewer casualties to their greater discipline. The fact that he had trained them really well was was why they were able to achieve this with basically um, fewer casualties than virtually any other unit in the entire um, on the entire peninsula, basically. And saying that, Malone wrote that a lot of losses could have been avoided by a night advance followed by a dawn assault. And again, this is something that's going to come up later. Which, funnily enough, was actually Hamilton's original plan. He was originally going to do a night assault um, and then followed by a dawn, or a, a night advance, sorry, followed by a dawn assault um, until Hunter Weston convinced him not to do that. So, you know, there's that as well. Uh, Malone was very convinced that the New Zealand officers had nothing to learn from the British ones, and the fact that they had seen active service, whereas the Kiwis hadn't, basically counted for jack shit. Um, he really thought that his, basically everything that they had done, all the training and everything else, really counted for more um, than the, you know, the British who had been out there actually fighting. And, you know, he was probably somewhat correct, but... Thus far, no. he's not been proven wrong. I'll exactly. give him that. So Johnston was likely one of the focuses of this comment as he seemed to get annoyed with Malone asking for intel and the fact that Malone wouldn't send his men forward on basically blind faith without reconnaissance. Um, he wrote, quote, I asked also for barbed wire, engineer detachments, the moving up of so-called support troops, supporting troops, and generally everything that can enable me and my men to do their jobs thoroughly. 
He says, uh, Johnston says, I am more bothered to him than the three other CEOs together. They say yes to everything and seem to blunder along. But I am not seeking popularity, only efficiency, end quote. So I'm back on the motherfucker side. All yeah, over exactly. <laughs> yeah. So he's oh, he is a troubling mm. figure. Yeah, I do appreciate that. Uh, just how much he cares about his men and and. Yeah. He's not so, wrong. <laughs> the Wellingtons were holding on best as they could, but everyone knew that the advance would be impossible without mm. artillery destroying the Turkish machine guns. This hadn't really worked, though, and in fact, Allied shells were being dropped clo closer to the Kiwi lines than the Turkish ones. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, they were actually killing their own soldiers. And it Not quite. Not at this point. Not at this point they were. Oh, so you mean they will be? I will neither confirm nor deny that. Oh, that's worse. Friendly fire. No. No. I will, not, I will neither confirm nor deny this. Fire in any world, like in any war, is ultimately uh, a I'm complete just gonna say, failure. You guys are going to really fucking annoyed how the story ends. You're going to make me fucking cry. Fuck you. Okay, let's just okay, let's if this do story this. Doesn't let's end do this. This story, in theory, should end with a mutiny, mutinying and sacking every single person involved and putting them into like a jail cell and then like literally disciplining them. Yeah, or better yet, military. Unfortunately, style. it Never doesn't. Mind. Should, but it doesn't. <laughs> I, oh, I just. No, I Hamilton ends up being 94 years old and surviving into after World War II. So, yes, we know that's not how it ends. But. Mm. Yeah, I know. And I'm going to cry. So, okay, fine. Let's do this. Let's okay. do this. I, so, oh. so they're not dropping, just to clarify, they aren't dropping shells onto the, the New Zealand line, but they are dropping them closer than the Turkish line. The The artillery guys are not doing their job, basically, in trying to figure out, or basically trying to um, aim one their job. shots correctly. Um, so it actually... The first day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is there yeah. Like, oh, sorry, like guys. It's, uh, it's my first day on the job. This sorry, guys. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Oh, I'm trying to prepare myself. The important part of this is that this um, the shelling stopped the advance of the West Coast Battalion um, because they had British shells exploding right in front of them. That was That's the key takeaway. Oh. Yeah, okay. and as such, okay. Malone made sure to give them a piece of his mind, telling them if they continued like this, they would be forced to shoot back. So he is not <laughs> fucking around. And I think if you'll remember from the last episode, if you'll remember, uh, his troop are particularly good shots when they've got the old sniper rifle, like uh, lock and uh, load, if you will. Exactly. So he was he was particularly pissed at these guys. Um, you know, it, it 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 seems like it was on another level. It's like. You, you know, you're you're just like a dumbass, like you know, like because you're a, you're an idiot commander, <laughs> but simply like, shooting at our guys, like that's almost a level above in a way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the main reason for this basically whole problem was poor observation and a lack of communication lines to the from the artillery guys to the front of the um of the trenches. To fix this, Malone bought his own telephones using using regimental funds, knowing that it would save lives. 
he basically had to go into more or less his own bank account to save his own men's lives, which is ridiculous. He also personally reconned where the Turkish machine guns were, despite risk to sniper fire. He found a bunch of dead Turks, Kiwis and British too, which he decided would be buried at night, uh, nightfall after his men had cleaned their trenches of tins, food scraps and other waste. Again, he was very, uh, very uh, keen on making sure the trenches and stuff were nice and clean and hygienic and spick and span and all that. Which again is saving lives. Yep. And it's important. Oh my God. Yeah. He's such a big. Okay. On the 11th of May, Malone was ordered to reinforce another position, but retorted that this would mean he had to pull men off the front line, which is not ideal. He asked why the Otagos, who were currently in reserve, couldn't do it. He was informed that they and the Aucklands were fucked and out of action for now, and that he was the only fully functioning unit in the brigade. However, after four days on the front line, the Wellingtons were finally relieved and sent into reserve. They marched back to the beach in a torrent of rain. Malone and his men found shelter among stacks of boxes and food containers, Malone himself crawling into a small shelter with a random man and cuddled him for warmth, the man putting his blanket around Malone as they fell asleep together. Okay, that, so they that's awesome. they have fucking bivouac nothing? They mm-hmm. just have to sl- Oh my god! But can I just say, Malone Jesus. is fucking right. Oh. Malone gets justification for sleeping on a mat now, right? Like, for all those years back home, it prepared him for this. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the kind of interesting right. thing about men, this like, encounter... Just... Sorry, the, yeah. the, the kind of interesting thing about this encounter is that Malone woke the next morning to find it was, quote, a black man with gold earrings. Fancy my surprise, didn't I laugh, end quote, which he wrote in a letter to his son. The man, and I'm going to butcher this name, so I do apologize, was Naran Sami, a Madrasi Hindu of the Indian Army. Malone later returned to Sami to get his photo taken with him and gave him a bit of money for the hospitality. So... You know, that was, I think I alluded to that a bit a, a few episodes ago, but that was kind of this weird kind of thing. Like Malone's like kind of ra- a bit racist, but with his like, you know, oh, look, it's a, it's a person who's brown, you know, isn't that interesting? So it's like this weird kind of oriental but, kind of exotic thing. Yeah, but there's also this weird thing. And I know I'm not saying Maori, right? But like yeah. also the 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 stance he took toward that sniper unit that we talked mm. about before. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, yeah, that's who that was led by. And he's like, all right, fine. We're rocking and rolling. This is war. I don't give a shit what color you are. Suddenly his racism goes the fuck out the window, which I think is interesting. It's like, if you're useful, if you're down to clown and you're doing this with us, suddenly he becomes, I don't know. I don't know if it's that band of brothers, we this band of brothers kind of attitude or mm. or what it is. Like, it, it's so weird to me for a guy that is like so staunchly racist as to remark on the Japanese and their cleanliness and orderliness, and then turn around and be like, oh, I'm a picture taken with this 
black man with two gold earrings that I yeah. or like to to I don't know I don't get this guy he's just oh he's a mystery yeah. to me yeah absolutely so the next night after not taking any of his clothes off for 18 days Malone slept <gasps> in only his shirt and cardigan as they relaxed even just for a moment he also went to go have a look at a nearby fort occupied by the French, which solidified his idea that his men were the best on the peninsula, saying that the Aussies were here to kill Turks and refused to do the hard work like digging trenches. So, did, did they at least all get to like launder their clothes or they're just... I don't know if they did. Um, I would guess no. But no, I'm not sure. Because who's gonna do it unless they're yeah. gonna do it? And they're just That'd be a risk, off. wouldn't it? Would it not? Like an unnecessary risk at that point. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. So British and French commanders were now looking at the situation was that after three days, they were still one kilometer or zero point six miles from Carithia, which if you remember was their objective. And that this objective was actually unlikely. Now, it was a matter of whether they could hold on to their position on the peninsula at all. You know, it was getting that desperate. Malone was by now very critical of the opening stages of the campaign, saying how the shelling of forts by the Navy was a mistake, as it gave the Turks six weeks' notice of their intentions and allowed them to act accordingly. His thought was that they should have just rushed in with the army and swept them away. Malone also devised a strategy to break the now stalemate at Gallipoli. First, they would need to establish a strong line at Hellas and garrison it with the worst troops. Three divisions, 45,000 men, would then move to Anzac Cove at night and attack Hill 971 at dawn, the highest hill on the Sari Bear range, supported by naval shelling. Once Hill 971 was hit, sorry, yep. No, I'm just saying, well, I mean, that's not a bad fucking idea. Okay. Doing it at night isn't a bad idea. Yep. None of it's a bad idea, actually. So, yeah, let's go yep. on. So once Hill 971 was captured, they would move on to the Dardanelles coast and cut off Turkish communication, fulfilling the original objective of the Gallipoli campaign. He hoped something was already being thought up in that vein, but it sounds like he sent it to Birdwood so he could consider it. Um, Birdwood, of course, being the leader of the New Zealanders, I believe. Let me check. No, he was, yeah, he was the commander of the Anzacs. Um, was Birdwood? It's not a bad idea. Really. I mean, given in theory and in paper, you know, not on paper are two different. Uh, not on, uh, uh, but fuck, you can't get any works on actual paper. I mean, it's not a bad well, goddamn idea when you look at it. As we will find... Although they didn't take up Malone's consideration, this was going to become an actual plan. Spoilers. So on the 16th of May, Malone sent a letter to his wife, Ida, talking about how fit he was, his difficult relationship with Johnston, and how he wouldn't tell him things, and that all Malone wanted to know was that the precautions were I'm being taken. I'm surprised that wasn't censored, right? Because wartime censorship yeah. was a I am too. Actually, a lot of the things he said. Okay. Yeah, because I've seen World War One telegrams. Usually, there's just like gigantic like leaves. Yeah, Us. yeah. But yeah, they must have um, they must have let it through because I mean we know it now. So I guess yeah. at some point he 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 was able to get it through. 
Um, and yeah, and that's all he wanted to know was that precautions had been taken because often they weren't. Um, he also sent her photos of his tent and makeshift box bookshelf, on top of which he placed her photo. He also wrote Aww. to a colleague from his territorial days, praising his troops, calling them, quote, heroes all. I'm so proud of them, end quote. Okay, god damn it, Thomas. God damn it, Thomas. <laughs> we get a high point with, with him, right? Because I think as our listeners at this point know, we've been up, very down. Yeah. Slightly up with, with certain regards down. And now yeah. we're at a now we're at a yeah. peak where it's like, well damn it, at least his consistency and his love for his wife is there. And yeah. that's what and also his men. Like, yeah, that's I true. And like, and it's like him he saying he's proud men. of all of them. Like that makes me really sad because it's like, oh, oh my you know, God, don't, no, 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 it's like, no, no, I'm gonna, I'm not done yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit this one home. He okay, said he hoped to meet the Taranaki families that had lost sons in Gallipoli and tell them how much respect and affection he had oh, no. for them. That's. Oh, oh he knocked it out the park. Where he was and how he started out his like fucking. And you know from his self-fulfilling prophecy, there was a distinct chance he wouldn't get that point. So there's like the fact that he really expressed will that he could do that says a lot to me. Like, and, that and it tells you his respect for his men. You, Thomas. Oh God damn. That I'm just listeners. You can't see it right now, but Thomas is sitting here, pretty turtled, pretty. <laughs> Pretty, I'm pretty not tough happy. with myself because it's it it, it is I, I I don't know I kind of made this a goal now to make to make Jessica cry. <laughs> yeah, you have like based on where he starts out. If if you'll go back and again, I encourage viewers. If you didn't start it at part one, you're not going to understand why this is such a moving kind of up thing and down to, to, to say. So seriously, um, if you're listening and haven't listened to parts one through four. What are our parts one through three? Go back. He's, he's Go back. very much we this band of brothers kind of guy, and I kind yeah. of on board with that. Oh shit! Why isn't Pretty there a movie about, about him yet? Why isn't there Netflix? Get on yeah. this shit! Oh, because yeah, I would argue that he is some somebody that's important to examine because we live in an era where we're need needing to examine racial prejudice and address it, and he is. He's definitely a person to examine the problems with that through. Yeah, um, he's a, he's a very and, complicated man. To turn around and say something like that, like, oh, shit. Yes, mm. sir. Okay. Fuck you, Thomas. Fuck you so hard. I you're you're you. welcome. Okay, I'm just telling the go. story. Yeah, okay. Fine. <laughs> Good. You just, like, hammered it home. Yep. You had a home run on tears. Yep. I knew it was off. there. Okay, so, at some it. point... At some point after this, the Wellingtons were ordered back to Gallipoli, re-embarking on the 18th of May. But not before Malone had a go at the officers organising the whole thing, who hadn't sorted a place for his men to sleep, he himself finding a quick kip in a lifeboat. The Second Battle of Carithia had lost the Allies 6,000 men to casualties, which is nearly 30% of the troops involved. Oh the NZIB alone lost over 850 officers and men, either killed, wounded, or missing. 
Quote, we and the other troops have suffered tremendous losses because our directors failed to quickly appreciate that this is the day of digging and machine guns and that prepared positions cannot be rushed, end quote. Carithia destroyed the NZIB as a unit, the Kiwis never forgetting how they were massacred by the Turks. But more importantly, they would never forget who sent them there to that massacre which is the British. Yep. So, once back at Anzac Cove, Malone recovered his mail and read his letters from Ida while bullets whizzed overhead and into the sea. This pleased him for a bit until Johnston summoned him to talk about his lack of obedience. Malone saying he went to, quote, have it out with him, end quote. Ooh, now I'm mad. Now my tears are stopping. Now I'm mad. Fucking angry. Let's do this. I'm fucking angry. Let's do this. So they obviously had a a crack at each other. I don't have the details of what that was, but in the end, Johnston apologized, and they seemed to come to some sort of understanding. Goddamn right he did. Mm. In the time that the NZIB was in Hellas, the remaining Anzacs had repelled a Turkish attack, inflicting 10,000 casualties on the enemy. Jesus. So, again, oh, I not talked about this before, but as bad as the numbers are on the Allied side, they are substantially worse on the Ottoman side. It is Remember, important to remember that. Remember, last episode, we dropped 14K. Now we've dropped 10K. Oh, my God, you're right. And this remember, the so Ottomans nasty. win this. They win this battle. Yeah. I... I don't know, but at what cost? Like, oh. They yeah. broke at what cost? In fairness, they were helped by the fact that the British commanders were not very good at their job. But, you know, winning a battle whilst also having more casualties than the enemy is an achievement. Yeah. 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 You're right. Oh, shit. Yeah. I didn't even think about it in terms of that. Like, that's rocking. Again, if we could have pulled that... Um, Again, go back to our last, if you could pull that fourth wall curtain back and be like, hey, I'm here. Uh, it's going to be important later on. Shit. Yeah. So the, the kind of funny thing about this is that the NZIB uh, was a bit pissed that the New Zealand Mounted Brigade, who had been left behind in Gallipoli, got to have the glory while they were basically destroyed in Hellas. So they would have preferred to actually been you know, doing something worthwhile. Malone was shocked to learn that Godley uh, planned a counterattack with 100 mounted rifles with no support. Malone saying that it was, quote, a mad fatal thing, end quote. Mm. This comment may have been partially influenced by the fact that one of the men selected for this attack was Malone's son, Terry. Oh. Who did survive. Oh, oh no. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. He did survive this attack. Okay. Yes. Okay. So he's fine. Yeah. Wait, he We're well past the days of cavalry. Okay. I said he, do, just, he did survive this attack. Yes, this you're right. attack. I God damn am it, noting Thomas. that. I just also want our listeners to know that cavalry in these kind of attacks that are being ordered was like dead in the Boer War days. So yeah. imagine how ridiculous it is in this fucking war and these fucking days. Like yeah. ridiculous. Such an outdated approach. Okay. Yeah. 
So an inspection of the Aussie front line on the 22nd of May convinced Malone that the Aussies were a bit shit and that they didn't have a hope in succeeding in their current position unless they followed the plan that he'd already come up with in Hellas. So he was quite thoroughly convinced that um, you know his, his plan was the right one to go with. Birdwood actually personally congratulated Malone for his efforts during the landings and recommended him for the Distinguished Service Order. On this, Malone said, quote, there must be lots of others who did more. I only did my job, end quote. So, you know, he's a bit humble. That's, that's nice. Good for him. But it's also kind of a slap in the face because he a did little his bit. job better. He yeah. did his job better. Um, I have to ask, like, I guess at this point, well, no, I already know the answer. So never mind. You've already told me. I just, I can't get behind. He's the only person that is at all schooled in what modern warfare looks like, but clearly is. Like you explained, they have this thing that they read and they study from and go mm-hmm. to this officer school, and that is the end of it. It's this gentleman's war fucking ideology. Yeah. When he's the only guy that's like, but it's, it, to say he's the only guy is, is a war. like you yeah, have no idea what you're doing. Yeah, with. to say he's the only guy is is a slight lie. There is a couple of people that Malone oh, was well, quite impressed yeah. with. Um, yeah, no, but but like, yeah, no, he's he not that, of them. Yeah, no, but as far as that chain of command mm. and, yeah. and the guys that I know that he's he's looking up, uh, 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 that yeah. is, it's, it's, it's going to get so much worse. I know yeah. it's going to get so much worse. So the Wellingtons were now set in reserve, and Malone had a little bivouac that he built himself with a New Zealand flag over the door to keep the sun out and biscuit tins stacked uh, into an armchair with a shrapnel shell turned into a flower pot, Um, which is, like, kind of weird. That is a little... He's so metal. I'm so... Oh, my God. The more I come around on this guy, I tell y'all. So at this point... Yeah, yeah, the flower pot, yeah. The flower pot, that gets me, though, because it's like, that shows he has some sort of weird, like, at the future, at the artist energy, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's like that single ray of brightness, which is weird, mm -hmm. because we know what he does with his wife and the flowers, and then, oh my god, this is going to get so bad. Oh, it's like putting that together. Okay, okay, okay. You're emotionally murdering Jessica right now, and you're very yeah. You are. You are. I am. Your smile is horrific. Okay, so let's go on. So at this point, the cove was filled uh, with Anzacs surrounded by a ring of Turkish positions. Not good. Hillsides were lined with dugouts and bivvies where thousands of men ate, washed, and slept. Water rations were 2.27 liters a day, which I'm not quite sure what that's. It's not a lot, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, this included drinking, washing, and shaving. Uh, meals were of hard biscuits, bully beef, bacon, cheese, jam, dried potatoes, tea, and sugar. So it's like, it's okay, I guess. Um, it's not super good. You can um, survive, but it's not pleasurable. Like, yeah. 
The containers for these items littered no man's land along with rifles, ammo. And so the other thing I was gonna, I, I was gonna say, I took a picture of a, one of the big statues at the Tapapa exhibit, and it shows this man eating from a tin um, that had flies on it and that kind of stuff. Because the other thing, of course, is it's extremely hot. There's flies everywhere. Um, the biscuits are extremely hard. They'll break your teeth. Um, it's, oh. it's quite a horrible time. Um, so you're having to use your like three liters to round yeah. up of water a day. Oh my yeah. god! Plus the the other interesting thing about these cans of like beef and um, you know whatever else that they had. Um, the the kind of interesting about interesting thing about them is that the grenades, the proper grenades, were being sent to the Western Front. They didn't have enough grenades to send to Gallipoli as well. So what the Kiwis or what the Anzacs did was they they had the wicks with the glycerin detonator in it. So they uh. would put uh, like screws and nails and bits of metal and whatever else they could find into these cans with a um, a wick with the detonator in it. And basically seal it up, light it up, and then throw it. And that was a grenade. So they Ted kaczynski their way into yep. the nearby trip. Oh, yeah. Fucking, oh. It just adds an extra layer, layer of terrible to the whole thing. I thought fixed um, bayonets was horrific. But now you have added a whole new layer of, oh, God. Thomas. Yeah. So, of course, the, the, the rank-and-file men thought that this was generally a bit stink. Um, but Malone, for his part, was actually fine and said things were delightful, uh, though he was concerned about the lack of hygiene and the possibility of disease. He actually requested timber to make proper latrines, but he was told there was none. Thankfully, neither he or his men now noticed the constant whizzing of bullets and shells. They had just gotten used to it by this point. Can we all just talk about the point that he's still thinking about latrines and shitting habits? Yep. yep. He's still thinking about where people are taking a dump. Which, again, given the terrain, right? At like, that's point, not a bad Yeah, at this point, concern. not out of context. Yeah. So kinda, it kind of oh. makes sense, yeah. It is an important part of camp organization. So it was at this time that Malone learned that one of his brothers had died near Auckland back in New Zealand. Oh, um, no. Yeah. So he regretted not helping him more as he had, fa as he had fallen, on, fallen on hard times. Instead, he vowed to help that his two me. kids. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rough, considering Malone was actually quite a rich man as well. Um, instead, he vowed to help his two kids when he came home and offered his widow a small weekly allowance to help her. Oh, my God. That actually makes that gets to me. Like, it's almost like when that rich guy becomes self-aware that he could have done more. Like, it sounds like a mm. biblical parable type shit, right? Like, yeah, he realized he should have taken care of somebody and then retroactively tries to. Mm. So there's some sort of, I don't know, character development going on with Malone here. Like, yeah, definitely. He's becoming acutely aware of he's kind of he's learning from his mistakes, I this guess. Goddamn, this guy. Okay. Yeah. Let's, yeah. So on the twenty fourth Yeah, on the twenty fourth of May, a nine hour armistice was agreed to uh, between both sides to allow them to bury their dead. The Wellingtons helped with this, uh, finding hundreds <laughs> of dead Turks ahead of the position that they um that they and Braun's Aussies had held on the 27th of April, if you remember to the last episode. 
Malone was pleased to see the work done as he felt it was a desecration of the body to leave it unburied for so long, remembering that he's quite a staunch Catholic. The atmosphere was tense as each side went about their business, but overall everyone was well behaved. Um, you know, and, and they, they ended up, you know, the, the soldiers ended up trading things like chocolate and smokes and, you know, that kind of stuff as they kind of got a bit more, realized no one was going to do anything too dodgy. The thing with that is, though, that didn't stop each side taking a quick survey of the enemy positions. It was noted that the Turkish officers were generally pretty nice, but the Germans that were on site were kind of dicks. Later that night, Malone wrote to Ida about the flowers on the hills, probably to distract himself. Why? Why, Thomas? I swear to God, you sat down and wrote this. Let's talk about what's going to make Jessica fucking emotional about this shit. Yeah, I know the um, person that was prepared for war so much is trying to distract himself from the horrors of it. Just by by doing that and, and looking at the horror, because I want everybody to fully realize how horrific burying these bodies must have been. Because like yeah. you said, sometimes you shoot these bloated bodies to rain down on enemy soldiers. It yep. must have been so disgusting. It it's... must have been so horrific. Yeah. Some of them, uh, you recognize them. Some of them are destroyed to the point where they are unrecognizable sometimes as people. Um, You you know, some of them have decayed. Um, It's just, it's it's awful. It's just generally just horrible. It's all horrors. Yeah. Yeah. So two days later, on the 25th of May, the Triumph, which is a battleship, was torpedoed. And two days later, the Majestic was sunk to Turkish cheers, resulting in the rest of the fleet being pulled back and the water being left undefended. The blow was mental too, though, with the Navy's commanding and comforting presence being missed. Around this time, Terry, Malone's son, was injured by a few bullets in his leg and one in the arm. Malone got time off to see him, and he was in high spirits, which was good. Again, around this time, Wellington Battalion soldiers who had been injured were arriving in England, and Malone wrote to Ida asking her to visit them and tell them that they had done their country proud and that their comrades had survived two more offensives in good condition. He also reassured her that he was fine and not to worry about him. And so, on June 1st, uh, the NZIB was handed control of Courtney's and Quinn's posts from the 4th Australian Brigade. When Malone first saw Courtney's, he said it was, quote-unquote, very higgledy-piggledy, which I thought was great. <laughs> That's a nice um, sort of, okay. Yeah. Okay. Malone quickly put his men to work remodeling the post, building terraces for cover and living quarters for men who were not on the line. Latrines were built properly for minimal fires as well as rubbish pits. So he's back on his <laughs> taking a shit. He's back on thing. his taking a shit cleanliness thing. Yeah. But also at this point, it's no longer funny. It's necessary. Damn yeah. it. Here Extra we are. Equ- full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Extra equipment was brought in and Malone's counter sniper team sent up to do some damage. 
Now equipped with special rifles and telescopic sights, the Turkish snipers were silenced in two days. And within a week, the entire Monash Gully, which the post overlooked, was much safer. So if you go back to that um, that map that I had uh, that I showed you last time, um, there is basically a valley that Courtney's and Quinn's posts overlooked, and that's what they were trying to protect. On the 5th of June, the Wellingtons gave covering fire to a night attack being conducted from nearby Quinn's post in Pope's Hill. The Turks replied with their usual fire and shelling, the, ter- the terraces that Malone's men had built protecting them, resulting in no casualties. Malone was unimpressed with the poor, poor planning of the attack and didn't think it was worth it. He made it clear in his diary that he needed better assurances that the cost in lives didn't outweigh the gains before he would be comfortable committing men to an assault. Malone was also concerned at the condition of his officer ranks as they were dropping like flies. They were being killed at quite a rapid rate at this point as well. At on June the 9th, uh, the Wellingtons were given control of Quinn's post, called Bombasert or Bomber Ridge, to the Ottomans, along with the Otagos. This was the most dangerous and insecure post on the Anzac line, and also just so happened to be the most critical. You see, Quinn's post overlooked the entire Monash Valley, where the Anzac troops and supply lines were. If Quinn's fell, it would mean the Turks would have an unobstructed view to shell and fire on the Anzac supply lines and soldiers, potentially breaking the entire front line. It is, yeah, really, really important. When Malone took command, Quinn's was a rat hole of trenches and tunnels holding onto the side of Second Ridge. Part of it had been blown up by a Turkish mine, part of it abandoned due to Turkish bombs, and the post was overlooked from both north and south by Turkish positions, called the Chessboard on Baby 700 and Johnston's Jolly to the south. Now, I want to take, I do want to take a brief pause because I get that probably a lot of people in the audience are going, why do all these things and all these hills have really silly names? Guess what? I looked it up. So I do have this. Yes! Excellent. So let's take a brief pause, because it is kind of funny how some of them got their name. So uh, one that you've probably heard a few times now is Baby 700. Um, It was named after its supposed height above sea level. This is actually incorrect. It's not 700 feet above sea level. It's 590 feet above sea level for some reason. Someone got it wrong? Yeah, okay. I I would think so. So. Yeah. So Hill 971 is another one that we've heard a few times. That's also named for its height. Um, It's just 971 um, feet above sea level. Uh, We've heard of Quinn's, Courtney's, and Steele's posts. They're just named after various people for um, various things. Some of them started that post and that kind of stuff. So not terribly interesting. Uh, The chessboard was one that caught my eye. which was, it's a crisscross of Turkish trenches that overlooks Quinn's post. So it looked kind of like a chessboard, which is kind of interesting. Makes sense. Um, Johnston's Jolly was the other one, which was um, opposite Johnston's artillery position, which would be used to quote unquote jolly up the Turks. So it was named Johnston's Jolly. It's like quite a morbid name. Yeah. Um, Others that. that we haven't heard yet, but we are going to hear is Battleship Hill, 
which was originally called Big 700, but was renamed because it received heavy naval shelling. And another one that we'll hear as well is Lone Pine, which all the trees had been removed for Turkish trenches except just one pine tree. All right. Makes sense. So, yeah, I thought some people might find that interesting. So, well, I find it interesting because it's so bizarre when you're talking about all this name, all these names that they, and you're going, why, why? But they, yeah, it's a, it's a testament to how long they've been there when it was supposed to be three fucking days. Uh, yeah, that, that's a testament to how long they've been there. They've named things. They know landmarks. They know by sight what they're dealing yeah. with. So. Ooh, let that marinate for a minute. Three days yeah. to months mm. and months and months where they're naming something Lone Pine. Yeah. God help us. So the the kind of the moral of the story is uh Quinn's post was frankly a bit of a dump. Um not something that you want to be said about the post that was most critical to the Anzac defense. Um however, Malone was about to make it his bitch. <laughs> Of course he is. I'm telling you, you're you're just like I, I don't want to be on his side in a lot of things, but I'm I'm just going, man. Woo! I'm on his side. What a war man he is. Oh, All this bullshit. Yeah. So I, I can only imagine what he's going to do. Oh yeah, he's gonna he is gonna really just He's going to bring that thing into line. The Aussies had held the post since uh, the initial 25th of April landings until it was handed over to the NZIB and the Kiwis would hold on to it for another two months until July. And during that time, the Turks hammered it, attacking it repeatedly as they also knew how vital the position was. As such, the men were always on alert in case of attack, which was likely exhausting. Malone sent in his second-in-command to check it out before they took control, and he found it was basically a fucking mess, with the stench of corpses that had been lying in the trenches mm. since the 25th of April. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, no, over no, a no. month at this point. Jesus. Mm-mm. Malone noted that the Aucklands and Canterbury's who controlled Quinns before him looked relieved they no longer had to be there. However, Malone blamed the Aussies for the state of the, the for the state that the post was in, saying that they should have pushed to give them a better position instead of clinging to the cliff and allowing the Turks to come to them. In some cases, within five meters, which is a very short distance. Oh, so he wants to be able to pop his head out and bayonet the fuck out of somebody who feels like it that day. Okay. Well, uh, that seems pretty rock and roll and metal for his character, so. So, to kind of give you an idea of what kind of Quinn's post would become, I'm going to send you guys some pictures of a model from the Gallipoli exhibit in Tapapa. Just kind of give you an idea of what this actually looked like clinging to a hill, um with uh, trenches and, um, you know, terraces and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm really glad you've got all of this because I don't, I just don't think 
people are going to understand what a different it, it's not like the western front you don't have a bunch of plowed fields and hedgerows that you're yeah this is terrain legit this is, terrain yeah, literally like trying to hold on to the edge of a cliff um is basically what they're trying to do um and digging the fuck into something like this is just yeah it's such a you, it's beyond imagining what we have now. Like you're digging trenches into the side of a cliff face, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what it looks like. Um, and Malone set to work getting Quinn's post up to scratch in the same way that he had done with Courtney's. He had the ground behind the post terraced and covered over to protect from shelling and bombing. Machine guns were mounted to cover Turkish trenches, parapets were repaired, and the trenches deepened. Bodies were covered in petrol and burned to prevent disease. Wire netting screens were made uh, to catch uh, bombs and throw them back. And the part of the front line that had been abandoned was slowly recovered. So he slowly. So I want everybody to think about that. He's built a fucking fortress into. Yep. Think about that. Like he has literal parapet. Like he has built a fortress of defense by hand, limited supplies. It's clean. It's orderly. Like he is rocking and ready to go. He built like, I don't know. For you Lord of the Rings fans, he just built Helm's Deep in like a couple of days into the side of something. That's insane. Yeah. That's efficiency. So to kind of give you, because I've mentioned machine guns again, I've now sent you a picture of two different types of machine guns. Um, this is also from the Gallipoli exhibit. This is not super related to what we're immediately talking about now, but I thought it's interesting and okay. to bring it up now. These two machine guns, the one on the the first one that I sent you, um, I should stress, both of these machine guns are actual machine guns from the Gallipoli campaign. Um, okay. The first one I sent you is one that was uh, that was used by the Canterbury Mounted Rifles. Um, um, the damage you can actually see on the Ottoman machine gun was inflicted, um, I think, by this machine gun, uh, by the Anzac machine gun, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just a couple of machine guns and what they used to look like, basically. Um, so that's kind of cool. Right. Yeah. So Malone also encouraged his usual hygiene, telling his men to shave daily, clean their boots and wash in at least a pint of water. He also encouraged them to keep calm despite the constant noise of shelling and guns around them and to keep everything as near normal as possible. No half-assing things just because they were at war in a shitty situation. So that was also probably a pretty good thing as well. Wow. Easier it said than done. Well, yes. Easier said than done, but it also does a lot for your mental outlook and mental health, right? Like... Yeah. If you could cling to making something as normal as possible, what we've talked about over and over and over in these disciplinary, like, action settings, at least you could focus on what you know you're supposed to do 
versus what's going on around you, which is just, again, that sound all the time of bullets mm. and all or artillery. Oh my God. I mean, that's thing? just, that's just good advice. Like in general is you hear that a lot, just for like mental health advice in general, if you're going through like a really stressy time, a really rough time, you should try and keep things as near normal as possible. Still try and clean your house. Still try to go to the supermarket in the same way that you normally do. You hear that now with like, you know, at least in, in New Zealand, pandemic, when, you know, yeah. when the pandemic was start, kind of started up, it was like, keep doing what you normally do as much as you can normally do it because you'll find that your mental health is better just in general. And, you know, there's not really any reason why that wouldn't apply to a combat scenario, really. I feel so horrible for having to go with this guy as hard <laughs> as I did for a first two episodes, right? Like, oh, mm. he's sleeping on there, but he was truly prepared is, for something. It has prepared <laughs> him for it, yeah. He also insisted that he's prepared that and he prepared them 110%. Yeah. Absolutely. So he also insisted that his officers plan for every possible scenario, wanting to ask themselves, if this happens, what will I do? Malone was also a bit sneaky too, though. If he didn't get the resources he needed, which was often, he got it by other means. In the case of the <laughs> wire netting and timber for the bomb screens, uh, he chatted to a naval officer and he stacked the items slightly apart from the main drop so that Malone's 40-man party that he sent to the beach could easily pick up and grab them and bring them back. He did this again a week later with some iron for building bomb-proof shelters. So Again, freaking fair considering the positions he's holding. Yeah, He should have exactly. already been allotted these things. So you know what? I'm on board. Yeah. So this meant that the garrison at Quinn's had a lot more resources that no other unit could get. And after a week, Malone was certain that Quinn's was now the safest post of the Anzac line. <laughs> um, I just want to double check. No, I don't have a picture of that. Because um, I haven't shared with you guys a picture of Malone himself. Really. No, not yet. But there is a fairly famous um, picture. Here it is. I'm, I'm really grateful we're going to have the website up before this so that we can at least have a place where people can go to see these maps and, and this sort of stuff because it, it's very important. Um, I'm actually just going to, I'm just going to send you the article. Um, but the. Okay. The picture in the article is uh, Malone in front of his dugout or his bivvy at um, Quinn's Post. Okay. Which we actually, we'll talk about his dugout in a minute. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of on board in the way that, again, you don't want anybody to be, uh, you don't, I mean, you always want your men to be better supplied, but considering mm. how important this outpost it, like this position is, I, I think he's right to do what he's doing. Like, yeah. I don't disagree with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So the, after, um, 
you know, he, he says it, it was the most secure post. Um, that was, you know, pretty true because they had also established complete firing superiority, out shooting oh, and no. out bombing that the Turks. Spoiler alert. Don't read the spoilers. Don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> Just look at the picture. Okay, look at the picture. He looks really proud in that picture, by the way. Yeah. So they had established firing superiority, out shooting and out bombing the Turks, which had been one of Malone's major goals. In fact, okay. an Ottoman deserter was said to have told them that the fighting opposite Quinns was so hazardous that they had been forced to call for volunteers to take their positions and to promote each of them to corporal. The thing Malone was most proud of, though, was the quote-unquote ridiculously small casualties, especially after having to do so much work at Courtney's and then do the same at Quinn's and then be all over the Turks to the point where they had the advantage. So it was a rare, a rare instance of, of their, you know, that the Anzacs actually kind of, not quite winning, but, you know, at least having a bit of an upper hand. Um, over the Turks. And in terms of Malone's own dugout, he had two sheets over it as a roof, uh, and the whole thing was lined with pictures of Ida and a small area outside where he held conferences and reprimanded troops. He also talked of planting roses on the terraces below. Funnily enough, somewhere around this time, some Taranaki troops uh, sent letters home saying Malone had been killed on the 21st of June which was reported by local papers. This, however, was false. At the time that Quinns was being reinforced, Anzac diggers were tunneling into the hillside towards the Turkish lines to try and blow up their trenches and attempt to stop the same being done to them. Which is another kind of deeply horrific part of the Gallipoli campaign was the kind of mining holes that they were making and the trying tunneling. to block each other. And you can hear Turks through the walls and if you guys have ever seen Peaky Blinders, that's the job that they were doing. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say uh, that is exactly what I was going to like yeah. try to paint a picture with. Oh, so imagine that. Yeah, so they have a couple of scenes in Peaky Blinders about like what that was kind of like and stuff and how they've got the PTSD from that. So if you've ever seen Peaky Blinders, that that's the thing that I'm talking about is what they, they were quite traumatized by. Um. They basically, yeah, what they did is they laid charges along the way as the Turks did the same and dug towards them, sometimes even hearing the digging of each other when they got close. This work would continue around the clock and was naturally a very nerve-wracking experience. There was at least two occasions where Anzac tunnels met the Turkish ones and fighting ensued. The Kiwis still had the upper hand, though, with them detonating 28 mines in two months to the Turks' four. So they were doing pretty well. Malone worked the miners hard, and they thought he was a quote-unquote damned nuisance, as he was strict about where and how they kept their tools. He even berated one when he tried to wake an officer for his rum ration, asking him how could the officer do his job if he wasn't allowed to sleep. Wow. Despite this, though, he apparently didn't give off the demeanour of a drill sergeant, that he apparently wanted to convey, as he had a, quote, quote, keen sense of humour, end quote. I'm 
guessing this perhaps wasn't meant literally, as it was because he would come out with some quote-unquote Irishism that would send the men into fits of laughter, resulting in discipline being lost. It then became a bit of a game to work him up as they found it funny, quote, he was absolutely delightful when really annoyed, end quote. So, Uh it's something. It's sort of that idea. Yeah, Mm. you just want to fuck with people. Yeah. It's funny when they get really angry about it, legit. Yeah. Additionally, despite his abhorrence of bad, bad language back home, he absolutely let rip in Gallipoli, usually to add embellishment when he was giving soldiers shit, whether it was the rank and file or even his superiors. So he just suddenly transformed himself into George S. Patton, like, for the day? or I guess you know? so, yeah. Okay. Um, so to That's go bizarre. Back, yeah. It's a bit weird, considering he was quite, you know, staunchly... Considering, yeah, who he is. That's interesting. So to to go back to the miners, uh, although he worked them hard, he also actually quite fervently defended them. In one instance, a major regularly complained that the mining wasn't going fast enough, and told the men that if they dug tunnels three feet high instead of six feet, they would save themselves a lot of work. At this, one of the miners handed him his pick and told him, quote, show us how to use the, a bloody pick in a tunnel three feet high or shut up, end quote. The major was naturally pretty pissed about this and ordered the man's arrest. Thankfully for the man, though, Malone was nearby and had heard the altercation, telling the major, quote, get the bloody hell out of this and leave my miners alone, end quote. <laughs> During dinner that evening, Malone was elected an honorary member of the mining squad and was presented with a badge made of a shell casing and embossed with a pick and shovel. Fifty years later, Malone's son Dennis would be told by one of those miners that they considered Malone of one of the most outstanding personalities in the army, adding, quote, and they Aww. were met not easily impressed. End quote. <laughs> oh, so I'm just picturing this really old guy oh. telling his son that, right? Because that's 50 yeah. years after the fact. Yeah. Not everything was Jim Dandy, though. Despite Malone being in great health, the men of Quinn's posts were succumbing to disease, with the parades of sick men increasing by the day. This was mostly as a result of heavy workloads, meaning they weren't getting enough rest, as well as poor diet and just the general heat of the whole place as well. During their time at Courtney's and Quinn's, the battalion suffered 482 casualties, 364 of which were from disease. So yeah, no matter about how hygiene. prepared he is, that you've got hygiene, you've also got like diet, and mm. and that's considering a guy that is obsessed about these things. So imagine yeah. Gallipoli without people. Yeah. Uh, without focusing on somebody who's obsessed with this. Jesus. Yeah. Or if you're under basically someone's command who didn't prioritize any of that kind of stuff, it would have been. Oh, oh I can't imagine. Mm. Like, oh god yeah. you're just trying to destroy me oh, one quote and then followed by this you're trying to fucking destroy <laughs> me this is oh, I'm just okay. telling a story I know <laughs> oh. 
So due to the great work that uh, he had done reshaping Quinn's, and because Johnston was off sick, Malone expected to receive command of the entire New Zealand Infantry Brigade, which he excitedly wrote about to Ida. This was short-lived, though, as after two days he was replaced by a British colonel. This cemented Malone's thought that New Zealand officers were seen as not suitable for high command, no matter how hard they worked. Both Godley and Birdwood said that they were impressed with his handling of Quinn's, but clearly not enough to promote, to promote him. Malone's relationship with all his superiors was steadily getting worse due to him not holding back his opinions and, constant, and his constant requests for equipment. Once again, Malone wrote to Ida at how the rising casualty list had now awoken New Zealand to the real horrors of war. The NZIB had suffered 2,300 casualties from its original number of 4,000, with Malone commenting that the Wellingtons had lost 200 men at Walker's Ridge and 200 at Hellas. Wow. And as we have mentioned in the past, Malone had suffered quite a few near misses at this point as well, a bullet passing through his shelter, another grazing his cheek, and his hands were cut up uh, after being... Um, after a shrapnel from a bomb uh, hit some wire catches as he was trying to straighten up the the thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And a month later, he came very close to death, uh, allowing the captain of a nearby destroyer to come to the trenches and toss a bomb at the Turks. It was a shit throw and hit the netting in front oh. of the trench, bouncing it back. Oh my God. Thankfully, Malone managed to pull them both down in time, so they came out unscathed. Can you imagine? Re- that's like, that's yeah. terrible. Like, you're that's... like, okay, buddy, do this, and then literally just softball throws it, and then, yeah. well, almost implodes both of them. Yeah, as, that is terrifying. And th- uh, Malone recorded that, quote, he was very apologetic, it was a rotten shot, end quote, which is... Kind wow, of like, that's, that is truly an understatement. <laughs> like, yeah, your friend almost blows yeah. you both up, and all he can say is, he was apologetic. Well, no shit, he almost blew both of you up, like... Yeah, which is, like, kind of weirdly funny, I found. Like, it it's is, I know, it is comical in that regard. I think it's because it's an understatement, right? Like, yeah. because it, it's, like, downplaying the fact that they almost immediately got killed there. Yeah, Absolutely. And Malone actually took another naval officer who was Captain Rod- Captain Roger Keyes. The only reason I name him is because he would later become Admiral of the Fleet, which is the highest rank in yeah. the... Uh, Spoiler alert. Um, yeah, who was is. impressed Wouldn't. with Malone and the Wellingtons. He told a British newspaper that Malone, quote, simply loves it, end quote, and that he had been taken down into the miners' shafts who were doing a great job. So at least someone thought they were doing good. That wasn't Malone. Now, that was cool. <laughs> Um, On the 30th of June, the Ottomans made a large attack, aiming to push the Anzacs into the sea once again. So this is about 65 days later, basically. Uh, Mm. Yes. Since they landed landed on April 25th. So So it's roughly about two months since they've they've landed. Uh, So this attack was repulsed after heavy casualties. Um, 50 (laughs) Turks managed to get into the Aussie trenches, but were quickly, quickly tracked down. In early July, after six weeks on the front line, Malone was ordered to take a week's leave. 
He spent this on the island of Imbros, walking around it, spending time with a local peasant family, and he met with Godly, who ordered him to take another three days. He also met the admiral of a nearby fleet, who actually already knew Malone by his reputation. Quote, I've heard of you. You are the man who turned the Turks down at Quinn's post. You deserve a good rest. End quote. Oh, well done. Oh my god. Fuck you, gentlemen. Okay, 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 okay. Go We're on. getting... Go ahead. By mid-July, there were reports that another big Turkish offensive was soon to happen. Allied commanders understood that the Turkish Council of War was sending another 100,000 troops south <clears throat> to the peninsula to conduct the attack against either Hellas or Gallipoli on the 23rd oh, of July. No. In saying that, other reports I were know. coming in. Other reports were coming in that said that although the Turks were quote, a natural fighter, end quote, they were beholden to their German, quote-unquote, taskmasters. And that their heart... And that their heart was not in the struggle unless Istanbul was directly threatened. Which is not really true at all. That's honestly some racism, right? It's like saying, no, it can't possibly be the Ottomans. It has to be Germany pulling the strings. It's an always sunny, like Dennis Reynolds scream pillow right now. Just yeah. Oh. The other the other kind of part of that as well. We'll kind of once we eventually, probably in a couple more episodes time, get to the the kind of debrief at the end. This whole plan and this whole thing, and as I just mentioned, you know the the struggle. What you know, they didn't think that they were in the fight unless Istanbul was being directly threatened. The whole plan was predicated on the fact that if Istanbul could be taken, the Ottomans would surrender, that they would bow out of the war. There was zero evidence to suggest that. That you know, if their capital was taken, there was zero evidence to suggest that the, the, the Ottomans would just roll over and capitulate. So it wasn't even a good plan to begin with, necessarily. They're fucking land pirates that connates that that the Russian Empire couldn't take at the height of her power. Like, oh my God, this is insanity. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking insanity. So another oh, set sorry. of intel claimed that Turkish troops were being pushed to attack Quinns by their officers before being promptly abandoned. Many of those facing the Anzacs were just raw recruits, with many others waiting for an Anzac attack so they could just surrender. The house oh, to Ottoman soldiers. Oh, Malone oh prepared God. his men for this apparently impending attack, but apart from a few short bursts of fire, nothing really happened. Malone wrote that he and his men hoped that they would attack so that they could slaughter the Turks, desperate to see some more action and get a win, basically, because they hadn't been doing very well at this point. At 4 a.m. on the 30th of July, a Turkish mine went off and killed three men wounding and wounded eight. Malone blamed his superiors that they had supplied, had they supplied him with the proper materials, he could have built defenses that wouldn't have led to the deaths of these men. Malone also went to bat for his men against Johnston when he wanted to get his men rice, dates, and other cheap fruit to eat, uh, other than just the shitty bully beef that they were eating. 
This was refused, and Malone would later write to Ida that all senior Imperial officers should be sacked. So, should be fired. He's not wrong. He's escalating in rhetoric, though. Like, at this point, right? Yeah, he is. You can gradually see he's getting angrier and angrier. Yeah. So, in late July, Malone also met met with Johnston and his other officers to talk about a report from the War Office. It had been sent to give tactical advice to them after taking learnings from the Western Front in France. It instructed them to make... I know about this. Okay. (laughs) It's not applicable. Oh, my God. Okay. So it instructed them to make defensive positions on the reverse slope of a hill to protect from enemy artillery rather than the forward slope where they would be clear of a clearer range of would have a clearer range of fire. Malone apparently said that he had always professed this, but this came from a rival officer he butted heads with, so maybe it was meant to be kind of defaming, basically. Yeah. In any case. The officers disagreed, saying that hasty lessons learned in another theatre shouldn't be applied to Gallipoli, where the Allies had a superior artillery and the battles were mostly fought with rifle and bayonet. This would also allow the Turks to make a larger push to take them off the high ground. According to the same rival officer, Malone agreed with this assessment. This rival officer, by the way, is Tempoli, who is going to come up later, so write that name down. It's um, is actually Johnston's second-in-command. So, at this point, the Wellington's time at Quinn's was coming to an end. Malone had much to be proud of. In three weeks, his Wellingtons had taken one of the most vulnerable positions on the Anzac line and rebuilt its defences, achieved superiority of fire over the Turks, and turned the post into a fortress. The defence of Quinn's post by the Kiwis, and even a little by the Aussies, quote, would stand as one of the most remarkable examples of courage and ingenuity in modern warfare, end quote. This wasn't the end, though. The New Zealand Infantry Brigade had been selected to play a major part in a coming offensive to sweep the Turks away and complete the original objectives of the April landings. The Battle of Sari Bear was about to begin. No! I see that cliffhanger, Thomas. God! I didn't know this is where you were taking me, you asshole. And I'm just sitting here like, you didn't expect this? So the Battle of Sari Beard, if anyone is wondering, I have been consistently saying throughout these episodes, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. We're at the worst. Uh, The Battle of Sari Beard is effectively the climax of the Gallipoli campaign. Um, It is one of the bloodiest battles in the entirety of World War I. Um, it is arguably the most brutal battle in all of World War I. Um, you, th- you thought the battles we had been talking about now were, like, rough and horrible and, fuck, you ain't n- seen nothing yet, son. This is going to get really, really bad. It's like an 80s song. But, but baby, you ain't seen nothing yet, literally. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, Kara, I didn't 
because I do not study specifics of C20. I study an overarching uh, ideology and a story of where we go and what we're to in political ideologies. Which One could argue the Gallipoli campaign led to a lot of changes. Mm. Oh, one could argue that if you look into the specifics, but if you look at the overarching Miss International Relations yourself, uh, we don't. I am going to middle finger right now. Like, yeah, no, you should. You should. But I'll also remind you specifics is not what one looks into when one is looking at international relations and overall 20th century politics. And so. Even though I know it's coming, I have to say, I don't know that Malone, that's not something I equate specifically what is is coming, if you will. I have an Mm -hmm. overarching idea and I know nothing about the, the particulars of what who, what, when, where, why is there. I just know it is a grand part of the story. And now that I've looked at this through this lens that Thomas has specifically like dropped us into, it's it's just, oh, I know what's coming in. It just got so fucking horrific. I, I can't even, I wasn't sure that was where we were going. How many pages do we make it to, Thomas? Uh, we have now made it to page 21 of 36. Um, so we, oh, sorry, 22 of 36. So we have, uh, we, we started at 15. So we've gone, what's that, five, six, seven pages. So we've done really well. <laughs> so we're getting there. But, but these next few are going to be just rough. Uh, yeah, you so the next episode is almost up. probably entirely going to be the Battle of Sari Bear, um, which I think, like, in all seriousness and quite legitimately, we will probably have to put a warning at the front. It is absolutely fucking horrific. I'll put a... Yeah, we do. Because uh, it's, it's... For, for me, as a, as a person who... Likes to think, I, you know, I'm fairly, I'm a generally a, a kind of fairly stoic man. Um, this was genuinely that, distressing. Yeah, no, I didn't know that if that was. Again, I take no notice of who, what, when, where, why. British Empire is British Empire to me. Uh, fuck, if we are going here, holy shit. Yeah, we have to put a disclaimer. Yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna be rough, man. It's gonna be rough. Of all, like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know if that's where we were going. I guessed, maybe. I didn't know. I couldn't assume. Fuck. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna have to put a disclaimer. That's okay. We're learning things. (laughs) Well. We're, We're, learning We're having fun. We're yeah. Things. I, I'm not going to lie. Last night I was talking on uh, another podcast about the Second World War. And of course, I, I'm talking about the Pacific Theater. So I've got to go back to 1850. And I talked a lot about New Zealand and Australia and in general terms. And 
fuck me i did not want to get into this last night and so it's hilarious that i'm getting into it tonight okay so that's where we are Woo! it's gonna be rough yep it's, it's i yeah. i'm just now as much as i have applauded what you have done i'm now like realizing the full consequence of what you Oh have yeah, done. I have I have effectively shit, been butting you guys up for this entire four episodes now, almost exclusively for this battle and how awful it's going to be. Like, so what you mean to tell me is on the Ides of March we're gonna be like utterly like destroyed. Yep. yep. Well, that's fitting. You're gonna be you're gonna wish you got stabbed twenty six times. Yeah. Yeah. No. You are going to fucking ruin my. Oh my God, Thomas. I didn't. Again, this you is know not what something. I, into, I just know it in uh, generalizations. Thomas, and I just Thomas realized what you're going to Deep into violence and deep into history. And <laughs> I just realized we couldn't get through the, the entire episode without at least saying that we appreciate Thomas going deep into globally. <laughs> It's just, well, it's just, yeah, I mean, like, it, 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 I've seen it in the past before, but it, it, it's, it's, uh, we emotionally traumatized you having to research this topic, though. And I kind of, feel uh, bad. I mean, I knew it was going to be bad. I mean, I don't think anyone goes into researching this thinking it's going to be all sunshine and daisies the whole time. But it, it, to me, it's, it's important to get, uh, the, the perspective on the, the kind of the ground effectively. That was kind of, what I found, what I really wanted to get across. Here's my issue, and it's not an issue, and it's very hardcore, parkour, metal, on brand, and I appreciate it. I didn't, one, think that you were going to get this in depth. I got uh, hard stuff. So I, I am just like, uh, no, yeah, you go hard. Like, you, you are hard in the paint. Like you are fucking a Dennis Rodman of historical rebounds right now. Uh, but you go hard in the paint and I didn't think we were going to get to this. I thought it was going to be, you know, a semi-metal story. And now mm -hmm. I'm realizing all the shit you brought to this, Thomas, and you are going to take us dark, sir. Like really, yep. truly. It's going to get really dark. Maybe not I really have dark. to it's say, gonna be quite dark. no, it's it's going to be quite dark comparatively <laughs> to anything else, it, even where I take our listeners. So I'm super excited about it. You officially have the body count medal of of metal, actually. Holy yeah. shit, this is going to get fucked I up. I win. Okay. You know, can I just you say, you have won. Jessica, as much as our listeners love World War II, if Thomas wants to come back post globally for something that might be like a little more lighthearted, he could always do the tank. The tank. The Nobody tank. died to the tank, though. That's the thing. Yeah, but it's a tank. Yeah, it's death adjacent by First World War. Uh, I know, but the the tank was in World War Two. So I'm saying, the one I have in mind, the the one named after the Kiwi Union leader in mm. question that we're all smiling for right now because we need happiness. I love them so much. I just, I'm sorry. I, I'm like not smiling because I've just wrapped my head around 
where we're gonna go in terms See, of I, I studied globally a little bit when I was in college because apparently I decided that was where I wanted to end my World War One capstone and it was not a fun time I will tell you that it was not a fun time <laughs> I know that vaguely and I remember that vaguely uh but how specific and where we're going to end it. I did not know we were going to necessarily end up there. The who, what, when, where, why, the main idea of, oh my God, this is going to be brutal, Thomas. Look at you, sir. Yep. And you know, I would golf clap, master slap for you right now, actually. <laughs> Our producers Thanks. are going to prefer that. Uh, shut. Like, what a fucking yarn you have woven. Woo! Thanks. I'm going to cry in this one, but I know what's going to happen in the next Whoa. one. Ooh. The, the, the objective is to make you bowl. Oh, I'm going to fold fucking pieces. Don't make any mistake about it. Like, I'm going to be a mess. Kara's going to yep. be laughing at me. It's going to be a great time. So let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. That being said, Thomas, where do we find and follow you? Hello. Yes, I can be found um, on the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast, um, where we talk about Aotearoa New Zealand. It does what it says on the tin. Um, Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, History Aotearoa, or at History Aotearoa. And you can also find me on Instagram, History of Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. I'm also under the same name on Facebook as well. I also have Patreon if you want to give me money for this. So there's that too. You can also look me up, History of Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast, um, if you uh, want to give me money for doing that sort of stuff. Uh, but basically, I talk about New Zealand history uh, much in the same vein as lots of other podcasts, um, except it's uh, a lot more structured. <laughs> Man, man, this there's no banter. Uh, it's just me talking. Well, considering it's yourself, I'd be a little concerned if you're somehow having banter with yourself. Banter with myself, yeah. Like but yeah, that's me. <laughs> but I yeah. also think that you've seen the depth of what uh, Thomas's storytelling and and narrative history abilities are. Quite frankly. And very oh. obviously, uh, this is the same thing you're gonna you're gonna get without me going, oh, what the fuck, or Kara like interjecting intelligently. So it's uh, it's gonna be something along those same lines. Thomas is very gifted also, at giving us a talk, narrative and a yeah. history narrative. So follow you Thomas know. on Twitter for your milk takes oh. for for takes on how New Zealand produces milk. It is fine. And also, whatever fine. I was going to say. Oh, and also his adventures in the bush. We can't understate that either. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I sometimes go in the bush. A, he's a hashtag wink, wink, bush ranger, ladies. Bush ranger. Uh, but occupation, no more zoology. Like, all laughs aside, <laughs> when I retweet things that are bat news, they're always from Thomas because he's. It was something I've always been interested in, in like wildlife biology is is bats alone and New Zealand's bats. I don't think you get any more interesting than oh, no. ground crawling bats. I am He's... fascinated. Also, or Thomas, penguins. I disturb people with the inside of a penguin mouth. 
Oh, mess me up deeply. This is the kind I of realized, content you can look forward to. I realize that as you put it, they're like not, they are teeth, teeth, but not, but still it is the best horrifying thing. Oh God, I've ever seen. But what I specifically love is bat news because I really went on a deep dive on New Zealand's bats uh, because my kid loves bats. So we got into that. And like, that's the coolest thing ever. Like New Zealand bats. Yeah, you guys are really upselling Twitter. Um, I think you're really overstretching. Yesterday I made a tweet saying I wash under my tits. So just want to bring that level down. I just want to let you guys know that that's not that all the time. This is also, it's also just shit posting. Um, to be fair, you know. I wash under mine too. So, you know. I like, mean, I'm glad we all three wash under our tits. That is, exactly. that is a great common. But I'm just saying, you know, like if you're going in here thinking, yeah, I'm going to follow Thomas because he posts real cool pictures of like trees and animals and posts cool history facts and shit. I mean, yeah, sometimes. There's also sometimes where I just talk about uh, spooning one major political party and then grinding the other political party um, in in a club. You know, some, sometimes but it's just shit posting. To be fair america didn't know that it needed to wash its hands regularly in the face of a pandemic so i feel like a good tits under tit scrub is maybe something people should also you know apply to their daily life maybe consider it they didn't, if you don't wash under you your tits maybe consider doing it consider doing it we didn't consider hand washing before the pandemic so you know what a good under tit scrub is maybe, you know, I, I think you're really underselling your Twitter uh, <laughs> uh, content because obviously if hands weren't on the table, under tit scrubbing wasn't on the table either. So, you know. It's true. Each each to his own, Thomas. <laughs> Kids, let's move, let's move on from my, my under tit scrubbing on Twitter. Let's do that, Kara. Where do we follow you? Um, you follow me on Twitter at Cara DiDemizio and Instagram at Cara.DiDemizio. And before Jessica asks, I will also go ahead and plug Time Travel Talks, where you can follow up with the latest conversations, whether it be historical romances, whether it be um, right now uh, we're recording this about a month out from probably when we're releasing it. But we did. We've been doing questions pertaining to Women's History Month, which is a month celebrated in the United States states culminating around International Women's Day, which is an international um, day celebrating with women and everything that they stand for and everything they're fighting for. Uh, that being said, uh, we have some pretty exciting stuff that by the time this episode releases, we'll be having some Napoleonic questions on our Twitter feed. So please stay tuned at Time Travel Talks on Twitter and Instagram for more history content. Um, it's a good place for people that maybe casually interested. It's a good place for academics to kind of mix and mingle and get to talk to people that are subject matter experts. Or if you have questions on where to find something, it's a good place to ask. And if anyone's interested in the Discord community, feel free and drop me a DM and I'd be happy to talk to you about that as well. Um, but yes, you're you're better left to uh, either DM me on Time Travel Talks or Kara DiDemizio on Twitter, as I don't use Instagram as often, although Time Travel Talks does post their questions on Instagram as well. 
And Jessica, where can we find you and where can we find and listen to Body Count? couple things before we get into mm -hmm. where we find body count and where we find me i'm going to ask you guys again uh patreon is a great place to support everybody as you know we appreciate money donations as independent podcasters but if that is not something that you are committed to it's not within your purview it's not something you can do you can go and rate and review us specifically on apple uh yes I, and we've had two podcast. several really nice reviews lately so i want to quickly have, shout those and, out yeah thank you very much to hodge thank you very much to hodgepodge history and alicia from civics and coffee um they gave us two five-star reviews within the past week so obviously y'all are listening to our little um please rate and review us so i appreciate that as well as the ladies from whining about her story had given us a five-star review back in December. So uh, belated thank you to all those who've rated us, uh, reviewed us. Seriously, um, it's a great way to support a podcast, and it, it's a great way for podcasters to be able to know that they are making an impact. So whether you enjoy Thomas's show, whether you enjoy our show, seriously, rate us at five stars and review us, or also feel free and share an episode you're listening to, or as Thomas would say, if you listen to this and you learn something from it and it makes you deep dive, tweet at us. It's a great way to engage and it's a great mm -hmm. way for us podcasters to know that we're hitting hitting the mark, so to speak, yeah, that we're definitely. resonating. So seriously, if you listen and you were really struck by something, hopefully not shrapnel, um, please tweet <laughs> <laughs> Thomas. Um, or body count and say, hey, you know, I've been listening to this and I thought this was interesting. And especially if you have questions on where Thomas is getting his stuff, he'll be more than happy um, to share some good sources for that, especially since he is so close geographically to several of the sources he's been using. So um, yeah, unfortunately, being, in terms of sources, uh, for some of it is you have to be in New Zealand to access them. Um, so it's not, I'm, I'm more, it's not very helpful. Sorry, Warren. Yeah. So for some people that are like, where'd you get your, where'd you get your information from? Some of it is actually just inaccessible for people at the moment. Um, Sorry, doctor, doctor. Yeah. Like, uh, Jessica. Oh, no. He can requisition this. Trust me. True. That's true. <laughs> that's but that that being said, though, seriously, Thomas, thank you um, again. It's It's been an immense pleasure. And Has it, though? Uh, that, as soon as I said that, I caught Jessica's like, Dear listener, you did not see Jessica's eyes as I said deep pleasure because clearly that hit a certain tone with her. So, however, I find it quite quite pleasing. Hopefully, hopefully it's been now, it's been interesting at the very least. It's been, it's, it's been interesting. Um, every now and then, it's good to remind the listeners that Jessica is in fact a human being capable of emotion. So, quite frankly, <laughs> I enjoy these um, episodes. And um, we can find Body Count Pod anywhere you're already listening. Clearly, you know how to stream. So continue doing what you're doing. Download us, listen to us, share us. Um, so we're available on all major streaming platforms. Um, we can also find Body Count at Body Count Pod on Twitter and Instagram, as well as Facebook, which uh, Madison and myself are doing the Facebook because Jessica has preferred to keep Zuckerberg out of it, which is fair, all things said. And um, you can also find Jessica. Where can we find you at, ma'am? 
Jessica B. Manor at Twitter and Instagram. It's very easy. That's the only and two I've got. Seriously, though, support us on Patreon or uh, just share, like, and review, and we will be happy campers. But seriously, thanks, thanks to everyone that's been listening all the way through and that has been enjoying it. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. And I think that will call it a wrap. So, Thomas, thank you again. And no worries. Thank later. you for having me. But yeah, bye. Thank you.